Future City is sponsored by Prudential. Bring your challenges. Funding for Future City is also provided by grants from Josh and Janine Fiddler and the Baltimore Community Foundation. Hey, I'm Wes Moore, and you're tuned into Future City, a monthly show that changes the conversation around Baltimore from what's wrong to what's next. Today on the show, according to studies conducted by the Pew Research Center, as of 2014, 39% of voters identify as independents or unaffiliated, whereas self-identified Democrats accounted for 32% of the electorate. Self-identified Republicans, only 23%. All trends point to the number of independent voters only increasing as the divide between the two major parties grows wider and wider. So what will our future cities look like in terms of party politics? Is this the end of the party system altogether, or is the time ripe for a new party to gain national traction? There are dozens of political parties in the U.S., including some you probably never heard of. Parties like the modern Whig Party, the Legal Marijuana Party, the New Black Panther Party, the Humane Party, and then some you probably have heard of, the Green Party, the Libertarian Party. But despite the proliferation of parties, the United States has, in practice, functioned as a two-party state. No third-party candidate has been able to gain enough electoral votes to become a viable candidate for the presidency. Teddy Roosevelt came the closest, when he ran for a third term as a candidate in the Progressive Party. But even he could only muster 88 electoral votes. Remember, you need at least 270 votes to win the presidency. In order to understand the current divides in our political parties, it's important to address the complex history of party politics in the United States. And that's where we'll be starting our conversation today, with a historical contextualization of our modern political system. I'm thrilled to be joined by Professor David Carroll, who's the Associate Professor of Government and Politics at the University of Maryland. He's also the author of Party Position Change in American Politics, Coalition Management. Professor Carroll, welcome to the show and thanks so much. Oh, thank you for inviting me. So where do we come up with the idea of the two-party system from in the first place? Where, where did that idea even come from, and how did it become so solidified in our political mantra? Well, I think what actually happened is that two parties arose, uh, and the, those parties have changed over time, and we can talk about that. But the idea of the two-party system is something that uh, lagged the reality. Well, uh, you know, that was an observation. It's not that when the country was founded, people said we should have two parties. Not at all. The founders didn't want or expect political parties, and the Constitution you could argue, doesn't really work as they expected it would because of the two parties. So what were the founding fathers originally arguing for when it came to political parties? They and, didn't uh, want political parties to exist, and they it seems like many of them thought they could avoid political parties. Um, but even in their own lifetimes, in the, you know, in the early days of the Republic, uh, George Washington himself Uh, tried to be above parties, but uh, right under his nose, they were forming divisions between allies of Alexander Hamilton on one side and Thomas Jefferson on the other, uh, were even in the Washington administration and in the Congress in those early days. Uh, So 
the founders uh, didn't want this, but uh, they took part in it. And uh, at the time, people like Jefferson said, well, I'm just doing this uh, really in a defensive way. I mean, I would hope that we could get beyond this and so on. But the parties popped up very early. We saw parties popping up early, but what what seems to be interesting is that you had initial parties, and, 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 and actually, well, it's a two-part question. One is, can you talk about the evolution of the political parties, and, and why is it that even as we had these evolutions of the political parties, it still seemed that there were two dominant parties that okay. took up leadership? Yeah. So the, the haven't always been the same two parties, right? right. In, in Jefferson's time, there was the Federalist Party, which is the party of uh, John Adams and Alexander Hamilton. Today, we might call it the more conservative, business-oriented party. Uh, and then Jefferson's uh, followers, who were called sometimes Democratic Republicans. And what happened is Jefferson's party won out, and there was a brief period where there really was only almost everyone was in Jefferson's party. It was called the era of good feelings, but very quickly divisions arose and party system re-emerged with, again, two major parties, uh, the Democratic Party and um, the Whig Party. Uh, shortly before the Civil War, the issue of slavery tore the party system apart. The Whig Party collapsed, and there were two major contenders to be the alternative to the Democrats, something called the American Party which was an anti-immigration party. At that time, most immigrants, a lot of immigrants were white Catholics, people from Ireland, especially in Germany, and they were uh, then as now, immigration was a controversial issue. And the other uh, issue that turned out to be the bigger one was slavery, and the Republican Party was founded in the middle of the 1850s as a an anti-slavery party. And eventually, from that time period, the American Party faded away pretty quickly, and we got the two parties that we have today. Now, when I say we have the two parties that we have today, the Democrats of 2018 are quite different from the Democrats of 1860. And, as, and the Republicans uh, of Donald Trump's time are not the Republicans of Abraham Lincoln's time, but the parties as organizations are descendants of those, organi- uh, of those groups that were established at that time. Now, why do we always seem to have two parties there have been brief periods when a third party has popped up here and there. But our electoral rules really work to encourage people to get together uh, in two major parties. And that's not true of many other democracies around the world. If you look at other countries, even if they have two maybe especially large parties, uh, they often have several minor parties that, unlike in America, are significant, are, are, are represented in the national legislature, hold cabinet positions and things like that. The way we elect members of Congress and members of state legislature, when we have districts, the candidate gets the most votes, wins that, that seat. If you create a new party, you get 10% of the vote. Unless your vote is really concentrated, you're not winning anything. Hmm. Now, in other countries, like many European countries, Israel, New Zealand, they have what's called proportional representation. And they elect, you vote for a list of candidates that is uh, written by a party, uh, promoted by a party. And if that list uh, gets 10% of the votes, they get 10% of the seats. Um, And under that system... 
there's much less incentive for the different groups that gather together under the big tents of our two major parties to uh, compromise and uh, subsume themselves in this way. You can have a party that just speaks for a, a religious or ethnic or economic uh, group that, that's a, a fraction of the population, and it can be viable. The other thing that we, we have is we have the presidency, which is this big, indivisible prize. And again, if you have a party, even if you have a party that, let's say, has 10% of the vote, and it's somewhat concentrated, so in some districts you can win, you're not going to win the presidency. And then so you're going to be shut out of a lot of the political power. So these rules, electoral rules, were not created to promote two parties. But that, that's the effect that they have. So considering that, when you hear people say, well, I think there is room for a third party or I think there's room for a, for a multi-tiered party system because we're hitting a new level of disillusionment. We're, hearing, we're hitting a new level of frustration amongst the voting population, uh, your response is what? Well, I, I think that you, you always get these complaints. Uh, and also, if you look at part, voter turnout and participation, it's not so low. It was lower in the 90s than it is today. When Bill Clinton ran for re-election in 1996, less than half of the eligible people voted in that presidential election. And in more recent years, we've had somewhat higher turnout. Yeah, I think the highest was in 2008 when Obama was elected the first time, but it's, it's pretty close to that level now. I think that for a new party to arise, they would have, for them to have an opening, there would have to be, I think, a major concern that neither of the two parties were addressing at all. Now, there are often people who are closer to one of the parties uh, because that party represents the concerns on an issue that they have, but they're still dissatisfied. They feel that party isn't doing enough for them. That's quite common. But for a party to arise, like in the 19th century, we had a series of anti-slavery parties, even before the Republican Party. There was the Liberty Party, the Free Soil Party. But that was because the two major parties just were not touching the slavery issue. Uh, they knew it was divisive, and they just stayed away from it. I think if there was an issue like that today, and neither party was touching it, there would be room for a third party. But just the fact that people are cranky, no. I, I mean, I also think the major thing to keep in mind is that our parties continue to evolve and they take on new constituencies and new issues all the time. So look, if you look at uh, whether one agrees or not, if you look at what uh, Donald Trump uh, is saying on immigration, it's very different from what uh, George W. Bush was saying when he was the previous Republican president. If you look at the Democratic side, um, it's now a mainstream Democratic position to be for LGBT rights. Um, as recently as 2008, when Barack Obama ran for president and Hillary Clinton ran against him in the primaries, neither one of them was for same-sex marriage. Uh, that was still too edgy for leading Democrats. And, of course, today that's changed radically. So the parties um, continue to adapt, as society does. And when there are new concerns, they often take, um, take up these concerns, at least to enough of um, – a degree that they, they, they end up absorbing many of the people who care about those issues. So even if the system wasn't created to make it almost impossible uh, for a third party or a fourth party or a fifth party yes. to have any real, any real legs inside the political system, uh, that really is what, in essence, 
in your opinion, has been created, that it just becomes, because of the structure that yeah. we've laid out, it just becomes very difficult for anyone else to be able to gain any oxygen. Yeah, the, well, the incentives are for people to work within one of the two major parties. Um, as I say, if there was a sizable group that for some reason was being ignored by both of the parties, then there would be room. And, and, and people might then create a third party, not in the expectation that they would win the election, but that they would show that there's a large unrepresented constituency uh, so that in the future, one of the major parties would change and adopt these concerns. That's still a viable strategy. But for that to work, you really have to convince a large number of people that the, the, the two major parties are that there's no meaningful difference between them on the issue that you care about. Uh, and that has been a tough sell. And, and we've seen that. We've seen, we've seen the single-issue candidates try to, to get in there. And to your point, at best, what they've done is they've changed the conversation, but yeah. it's not like they built a platform that actually puts them in a position to win. No, not for, not for them. But, you know, but some of what they, so what they do, I mean, uh, is affects what the two major parties do uh, later on. Um, so, you know, um, George Wallace is the last uh, third-party candidate to win uh, states and win electoral votes in 1968. He didn't come close to winning the presidency, uh, but um, in later years, the Republican Party absorbed a lot of his support, and they grew in the South, and they became identified with uh, you have to say, uh, backlash to the civil rights movement. Um, and so Wallace himself never became president. This party didn't survive, but they definitely affected the course of politics in the country. And you can make the same argument about what Bernie, now granted Bernie Sanders ran as a Democrat, Bernie, even though he'd been a historical independent, yeah, but Bernie he would have the party. ran within the Democratic Party, and he got many, many more votes than he would have if he did what Ralph Nader had done before him and, you know, ran uh, as an independent. Um, I think that that was a strategic decision that he made. And it's interesting, even he who doesn't want to really identify as a Democrat um, ran within the two, you know, and, and, and look at look at President Trump. He's been all over the political map. He's been a registered Democrat. He's been an independent. He was trying to get the nomination of the Reform Party in 2000. He talked about running as an independent. You know, he, he told the Republicans, if I'm not treated fairly, I may run as an But even he realized that it was in his political interest to work within this framework. And he did. And it's really paid off for him. You've been listening to Future City. I'm Wes Moore, and I've been speaking with Professor David Carroll, who's an associate professor of government and politics at the University of Maryland. Professor Carroll, this has been fantastic. Thanks so much for speaking with us. Okay, thank you. Coming up, the centrist project doesn't want to create an independent party. It wants to be America's first unparty. We'll speak with the economist who founded the project. That's next. Stay tuned. Hey, I'm Wes Moore, and welcome back to Future City, the monthly show that explores big issues that are shaping the future of Baltimore and beyond. This month on the show, with the growing number of voters identifying as independents, could this be the end of the two-party system 
as we know it. Joining me now is Charles Whelan, the Senior Lecturer and Policy Fellow at the Rockefeller Center at Dartmouth and the founder of The Centrist Project. So, so let's first start with what The Centrist Project is. Where exactly did it come from and how did you go about creating this? Well, it came from a place of desperation, I would say. <laughs> the intent is to reinvigorate the political middle. I wrote a book back in 2013 called The Centrist Manifesto. The idea of the book was to create a third political party that would be that middle, not necessarily with a kind of warm mush of compromises between the two parties, but rather taking the best ideas of both. So maybe personal responsibility from the Republicans, respect for wealth creation, the heart of the Democrats, their commitment to the environment, to social opportunity, those kinds of things. Since then, obviously, the political system has moved away from us in terms of polarization, but that's the gist of what we're trying to do. Well, you know, but the really interesting thing is that you're, you're not alone. Right. I, I mean, I, I think not that, alone. You know, I'm alive. a lot of people have migrated towards what we're trying to do. I am not alone. <laughs> and that and, and actually, I mean, if you look at where the where the poll numbers are, if you look at Gallup polls, I mean, 70 percent of the country is dissatisfied with the direction of the country. You know, 57 percent that we need said we need an alternative to the two party system. Uh, so, you know, this 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 evolution that you're going on, this is an evolution that you're making with with seemingly the, the majority of the country. This is so interesting. I think 25 years from now, if you were to read a U.S. history chapter that said, you know, and then in 2018, when people finally got fed up with the two-party lock on power and a number of independents were elected, creating kind of three political entities in the U.S., kind of the harder left, harder right, and a centrist middle, everybody would say, well, that makes complete sense. And looking forward now, everything you said is true. Gallup shows that the largest and fastest growing political segment in America are self-identified independents. So there's no doubt that we're on the right side of history. Now, having said all that, it's also true that there's almost a learned helplessness. People are so accustomed to voting for Republicans and Democrats. Greg Orman, who ran for Senate as an independent in Kansas, calls it the Stockholm Syndrome, that we're, we're paralyzed by our captors, uh, that for all the things that are happening in terms of disgust with the two political parties, the rising support for independence, it is still hard to persuade people that they can actually vote for independence and change the system. Is, is it that it's difficult to convince people that, that, you know, that they can vote for an independent, or is it that it's very difficult to, to convince people to run as an independent because they're not sure if they can win? I think that answer is yes. <laughs> it's, you've, got, you've got a huge chicken and egg problem, which is that anybody who is a credible candidate looks at the history of independent candidates, looks at how hard it is to run without party support, looks at how hard it is because the two parties have kind of cooked the rules to favor their own interests, and says, you know what, I'm probably not going to do that, which means that voters historically have not seen a whole lot of really good independent candidates and therefore are very averse to supporting those candidates, which then circles back and makes it harder for those good candidates to run. So we at the Centrist Project are trying to break the cycle, really. Can we recruit better candidates, offer them some more support, persuade the public that they can win, and create a new equilibrium around this? So everything you've just laid out, I mean, each one of those elements that you've just laid out requires a significant amount of work and focus, right? It's it's the recruiting of the candidates. It's the preparation for the candidates. It's prepping the electorate to be able to think that they can actually vote for an independent candidate and that independent candidate has, he has a shot 
of, of, of winning. So how exactly does that work? And, uh, and then you talk earlier about what the, what the fulcrum strategy is. Can you explain right. what that is and how it relates to that? Sure. I mean, the, I think one important thing is the fulcrum strategy is a relatively elegant way of changing the status quo. And the fulcrum refers to the theory I laid out in the book, that if you had just two or three independent senators in the center, and the Senate was as closely divided as it is now, you could have the Senate divide in a way that it was, say, 48 Republicans, three independents, and 49 Democrats. If that were the case, those three become kind of like Justice Kennedy on the Supreme Court, the swing vote for a long time. They get to pick the majority leader. They are required to get anything done. They can be an intellectual bridge between the two sides. They can look to one side and say, we'll do corporate reform with you. They can look to the other side and say, we're committed to climate change reform for you. So the idea of just electing three independents is a really important step because people say, all right, well, I, I can get my mind around that. Three is not too many. And then we can kind of go through the scenarios as to where those three might come from. So the fulcrum helps a lot. We're still looking for support from big opinion makers. I think of some of the Silicon Valley folks who are used to breaking things that don't work, used to hacking the system, could turn their attention to politics and essentially hack the two-party system. Somebody who is big and influential who got on board with us would help a lot. And then more important than anything else, we need one of these folks to win. Greg Orman almost won in Kansas in 2014, running as an independent in a deep red state. If he'd won, I think we'd be talking, we'd be, be having a different conversation right now. Well, look at a situation like like either Angus King or someone like a Bernie Sanders, right? Where Bernie Sanders spent much of his political career as an independent, but when Bernie Sanders ran for president and had a had his most viable opportunity to to take that on, he didn't run as an independent. He ran as a Democrat. Why did he choose to do that, and, 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 and what does that, how does that then inform your strategy? Right. So you've mentioned two people, both of whom are independent, the only two independents in the Senate, actually, so Bernie Sanders and uh, Angus King. Angus King is a centrist by our definition. He's caucused with the Democrats, but I think that has, has much to do with the dynamics in the Senate as anything else. Bernie Sanders is really to the left of the Democrats, so mm -hmm. of those two only Angus King would qualify as somebody we would likely get behind in the centrist project. Hmm. One of our challenges, one of our many challenges, is identifying what independent means. The advantage that two political parties have is they've got a brand, and although there's a lot of room in both of those tents, people have a pretty good idea of what red is and what blue is. Independent can be anything from Bernie, which is left of the Democrats, to somebody who's radically right of the Republicans. What we're trying to do with the Centrist Project is put a brand around our slate of independents so that when we endorse somebody running as an independent, it means something beyond the fact that they're just not a Republican, not a Democrat. So it really is. It's, it's almost an erasure of the parties. It is. As I said at the outset, it's an attempt to take the best of each party and therefore build a bridge between the two. So, for example, we have a set of principles Anybody who wants our imprimatur has to believe in fiscal responsibility. We kind of leave that up to the, the details, but that means you can't run up trillion-dollar deficits year after year after year, which to my mind isn't really a Republican or a Democratic idea. That's just good housekeeping. That's, that's economics. So that you're not leaving <laughs> the debt to the next generation. Right. You have to believe in environmental responsibility. 
it's kind of curious to my mind that historically the Republicans were the ones who were supposed to be fiscally responsible, the Democrats environmentally responsible. But to our minds, climate change and the huge debt are the same. They're both imposing a huge cost on future generations because we are living better today than we ought to. So when you talk about some of the rules and some of the structures that are in place, which make it very, which really kind of bake the system for for the two parties, either the Democrats or Republicans, um, you know, one of them I know you mentioned is the fact that independents cannot vote in primaries. So you're really locking independent voters out until the general election. And by the time the general election comes, uh, you know, it really is already a pretty a pretty baked process. Um, in addition to that, what are some other rules that you would like to see changed? Right. We should talk about primaries first, which is people should just appreciate how crazy this is, that you've only got 20-some percent of the population who are Republicans and 20-some percent are Democrats. Independence is the largest group. And the primary voters are not only a smaller proportion than we realize, but the primary voters are the ones who are most polarized. It's the red meat base. So with those folks picking the candidates, it's not just the two parties are polarized. These are the most extreme members of the two parties. And then, as you pointed out, those those primary voters elect their candidates, and we typically see on the general election ballot somebody further right and further left than we would otherwise choose. We certainly don't like gerrymandering. We're not playing a lot in House races. But one of the things that gerrymandering does is it makes Republican and Democratic districts very safe. And when you're in a safe district, you no longer worry about losing to someone from the other party. You start worrying about losing to someone from either to the left of you if you're a Democrat or to the right of you if you're, if you're a Republican. And that is one of those things that kind of in an indirect way discourages people from moving towards the center while they're actually serving in the legislature. We think it ought to be easier to get on the ballot in a lot of states. It's curious that you actually need more signatures in many places to get on the ballot than if you were running as a Republican or a Democrat. It's harder to collect information. One of the things we're doing with the Centrist Project is as we support candidates, we're collecting information on messaging, on voters. If you were running as an independent, you'd, you wouldn't have that kind of ready list of donors, ready list of voters that you would have if you were in a race as a Republican or a Democrat. So we're trying to change the rules. We're also trying to provide the infrastructure that candidates need if they're actually going to win some of these races. So if you take a look at a, at a, at a situation like that, or, or if you take a look at, at, at Mike Bloomberg winning in New York as an independent, and there are other mayors who have won as independents, uh, why not take the strategy of saying, you know what, we're actually going to build this from the state level up and build up a pipeline of mayors and state legislators and governors, and then get the country familiar with the idea of voting for an independent candidate? Why, why start with... Uh... This, is, this is a brilliant idea, which is why we're doing that at the same time. I don't know yeah. if this is a setup, but it's a great setup if it is. <laughs> so we did start, starting at the Senate is like walking, you know, putting on skis for the first time and saying, hey, I'm going to the Olympics. <laughs> uh, it is bold. I mean, the, the fulcrum strategy says, look, you can have maximum impact at the Senate, but we fully appreciate the challenge of starting with the Senate. So about 18 months ago, we started involving ourselves in a couple states. Colorado is the big one. Our headquarters are actually in Denver. Colorado's legislature looks a lot like Congress in that it's closely divided and it's highly partisan. Hmm. What we have done this cycle, so for the elections coming up in 2018, is we had a massive recruitment effort across the state, 
going to mayors and school boards and other people of influence, chambers of commerce, and said, would you be interested in running as an independent for the state legislature? We then called, you know, we had hundreds of people who were interested. We called it down to about four candidates in districts where we thought they could win. We are helped in Colorado by the fact that they have term limits, which means there are a whole bunch of uh, seats where people have to retire and you get more competitive races. But we are simultaneously fielding independent candidates in Colorado in the hope that just that four will create the fulcrum in Colorado. People can then look to that state legislature and say, wait a minute, it has worked. One other thing is while we were doing that, we had a high-level defection, which is that somebody in the state Senate, who had previously been a Democrat, said, you know what, the, the parties are causing more trouble. She'd been there a long time. The car- parties are causing far more trouble than they're solving. And she left her party but didn't leave the Senate. She unaffiliated. So we're also hoping in Colorado and other state legislatures and maybe even in the Senate – that we might get some folks who leave their party but don't leave the institution that they feel they need to help change. So one of the big challenges for a lot of candidates who are running as an independent is the basic issue of money. You, you talk about different things that have baked in the party systems and have really calcified the party system. Partially, it's the fact that you have party systems that are so wealthy and and are and are keeping a relative status quo because of the amount of money that's able to flow into this how much is campaign finance reform how important is that to to the centrist project and how exactly do candidates make up for the for the difference between how much money that they'll be have that they will have to raise to uh, to actually be a viable candidate if i had a magic wand campaign finance is probably the thing that i would do first I can tell you as a former candidate, it's even worse than you think it is because the time it takes to raise that much money squeezes out everything else. It's what corrupts people, not corruption like you go to prison, but corruption whereby you just get in bed with the various interest groups because you need their money and then you're not in a position to change the things that need to change. It also contributes less obviously to partisanship. The, the easiest way to get a lot of money online is not to write an email saying, hey, I'm going to go work with the other guys and see if we can come up with a compromise on this really difficult issue. It's to send some screaming zinger about how the other party is going to take your guns away or they're going to make abortion illegal. And so the search for money makes candidates more polarized than they might otherwise be. I don't know that we can change that right away. Citizens United makes it a really tough lift. One advantage we have is that because we're not running candidates in all 50 states, but we do have a 50-state organization, we can tell our members, look, here are the four or five or six races that matter, and we can try and channel 50 states' worth of support into four or five races. We also have the luxury, particularly in the U.S. Senate races, of picking states that are cheaper. It's much better to run a Senate race in Wyoming than it is in California or New York. And at the end of the day, you're still a senator with the same vote in Wyoming or Kansas or New Hampshire or Vermont as you are if you're in a really big, expensive state. So it's tough. There's no doubt about that. But we're going to try and make it less tough. You've been listening to Future City. And today we're talking about party politics and the downfalls of the two-party system. And we've been speaking with Charles J. Whelan, who's a senior lecturer and policy fellow at the Rockefeller Center at Dartmouth and founder of the Centrist Project. Professor Whelan, thank you so much for your time today. Really appreciate it. Oh, it's been great. This is important stuff, as you well know. Absolutely. Thanks again.
Coming up, we'll see the Centrist Project's principles in action. We'll meet Neil Simon, an independent candidate for the Maryland U.S. Senate seat. What made him disassociate from the two major parties? And why, for him, being an independent candidate is a policy issue? That's next. Stay tuned. Hey, welcome back. I'm Wes Moore, and you're listening to Future City. And today we've been discussing party politics and how a growing number of independent voters point to a potential shift in our two-party system. I want to welcome to the show Neil Simon. He's a businessman from Potomac, Maryland, who's running for the U.S. Senate seat in Maryland, currently held by Democrat Ben Cardin. Neil, it is great to have you on the show. It's great to be here, Wes. Thank you. So so first, before we start diving into party politics, let's just uh, talk a little bit about you, about your background, about how you got into politics and why this is so important for you. First, I'm the grandson of four immigrants. My grandparents spoke seven different languages, none of which were English. And my mother was an immigrant as well. And they all came to this country because they believed it was a place where you could work hard and get ahead. They believed it was a place where you can get your kids a good education. And they also came here because they believed it was a place where they would be accepted and where they would dive into a diverse and productive society. I've spent my career running five different professional services companies, all of them surrounded by smart, energetic people with differing opinions. And my role was often to bring them together, to form some level of consensus so we could make progress together. And service has always been a big part of my life. And mostly to date, it's been through nonprofit work as a volunteer, as a board member, as a board chair of a number of groups, including the Greater Washington Community Foundation and Interfaith Works and the Capillary Food Bank and and others. And I just have always felt like an important part of my role as a citizen is to serve others around me. And this political journey is a next step in that process for me. And so, but when you decided to run for office, you didn't go to the Maryland Democratic Party and say, I'm raising my hand or the Maryland Republican Party and say, hey, I'm interested in running. You decided to run as an independent. Why? I, like so many people in this country and in our state, feel politically homeless. And I feel like both of the parties have been pulled to the extremes by their leaders. And I have felt that way for a while. And I've voiced that opinion to business colleagues of mine, to friends of mine, to my family at my kitchen table. So, and I've considered myself an independent for a long time. And I've always believed in voting for the best candidate. So when I started to think about potentially running for office, it really wasn't a question for me of which party or as a nonpartisan. I think our two-party system is not working for us. We're getting terrible results. As I've gone around the state of Maryland and have had hundreds of conversations, The one thing everybody can agree on is that we are getting terrible results. So we need to do something different. And I became involved with other people around the state and around the country who were like-minded and believed we needed to do something other than the D and the R and decided to run as an independent. So when you're on the campaign trail, how much, what percentage of the conversation is around that issue versus what percentage of the conversation is around the issues? It splits. 
so it's let's say half and half. There's probably half of the conversations which are about the dysfunction in our government nationally, about the fact that we have leaders in this country who seem to care much more about winning the news cycle and winning arguments and getting money from special interests and winning elections than they do making progress. And people intuitively understand that if we have moderate independence in the U.S. Senate, particularly if we can deny both parties a majority, that that could make a big difference. So a good chunk of the discussion is about that that national dy- dynamic, the dysfunction on Capitol Hill and what we can do about it. But then the other half of the discussion is about the people of Maryland, which is ultimately what this is all about. So my passion at the end of the day is to help people in Maryland get ahead. And I think our dysfunctional government is getting in the way of that in many different ways. You know, it's interesting. Someone uh, brought up a point where they said, uh, they feel like the function of one party is to push back against the other party. And basically what you're saying is, no, the function of what we're doing is to advance specific agendas and, and to advance the, uh, the the will of the people who you're intending to, to serve. Uh, do you feel that when we look at the current party system, that it is even designed to have successful results? Or do you feel like part of what you're doing is you're making this one of the big issues that we have to focus on, the idea that we have to disrupt the system in order to have proper results for the people. Most people don't know that political parties are not mentioned in our constitution. Our founding fathers feared that one day people would have more loyalty to party than they did to the country. And I think that's where we've gotten. In fact, George Washington, in his farewell address over 220 years ago, voiced three fears. His number one fear was that people would develop more loyalty to party rather than their country. Number two was that we would build up an excessive amount of debt. And number three was that we would fight unnecessary wars over 220 years ago. That's why, as corny as it sounds, George Washington is one of my heroes. He had a lot of foresight there. So there's nothing about political parties in our Constitution or a Declaration of Independence. It is not supposed to work this way. We're supposed to have representatives of the people who put the people's interests ahead of political interests. And we have sadly disintegrated into a system where we have leaders that are putting party interests ahead of everything else. And I think it's inexcusable and we need to change it. And have you benefit or how have you benefited from the work of the Centrist Project and the fact that your part, it's not just running on yourself, but there's a, it's part of a much larger movement as well? I'm part of a national movement that has been called the Centrist Project and will be renamed Unite America. And we have several governor candidates and several candidates for U.S. Senate. And that movement is important, particularly in the U.S. Senate, because in the U.S. Senate, you only have 100 members and it's fairly evenly divided right now. And if we can elect a small number of moderate independents and deny both parties a majority, you can completely change the dynamic in this country. You can force the discussions to the middle. You can propose legislation from the middle so we actually get things done. If you think about many of the recent issues where to some of us compromise seems blatantly obvious, things like immigration, we would get that done. It would, it would change everything. So the centrist project and this national movement is an important component. For me, a few years ago, I never thought about running for public office. And it's only because I met so many like-minded people nationally and within this state that I started to think about it more seriously and was seriously encouraged to, to pursue it. And so explain to me the nuts and bolts of this. And, and, and first, I want to even before we talk about the nuts and bolts of the race, uh, let's actually talk about the nuts and bolts if you win. 
uh, you don't caucus with anybody in the Senate, correct? I would caucus with the people of Maryland, period. So nuts and bolts are interesting in the Senate because there's no historical precedent for what we're trying to do. So imagine the scenario that I described where you had 49 Republicans and 49 Democrats and two moderates in the middle. In the U.S. Senate, the power resides with the majority leader. They set the agenda. They determine committee assignments. They have a lot of influence. Both parties in that scenario would be desperate to have the majority. So the people in the middle could talk to the two parties and say things like, okay, if you want us to caucus with you, Republicans, rather than Mitch McConnell as majority leader, we want somebody more moderate. We want Susan Collins. Or Democrats, you want us to caucus with you, rather than Chuck Schumer, we want somebody more moderate. And with committees, rather than you have the chair of every single committee, if you want us to caucus with you, we're going to have the minority party chair a few of these committees because we're bringing in a new culture of communication and collaboration where we're actually going to develop trust with each other and we're going to work together for the American people rather than just fight for these political interests. So a small number of people in the middle can have an unbelievable influence because of the nuts and bolts of the Senate. And we've spent time talking to lawyers about it and talking to a Senate parliamentarian, a former Senate parliamentarian who I spent an hour and a half talking with. And the amount of leverage that we could have is staggering and would change the course of history in this country. Are, are we away from having an independent president of the United States? I think it can happen, but the hurdles are great. In statewide elections like the one I'm running in, there's a lot of precedent around the country for independence winning statewide election. We've got Angus King from Maine right now as an independent senator, the governor of Alaska, Bill Walker, is an independent governor, and there are plenty of other examples. For national elections, the hurdles are even greater. Somebody estimated that just to get access to the presidential debates as an independent could cost $300 million because you need to develop a certain polling percentage. So for a national presidential election, it's hard. It would have to be someone, I think, who came in with a ton of name recognition already. So there have been names bandied around like Michael Bloomberg or Oprah Winfrey. I think candidates like that would have a chance, but not a typical politician. So let's dig in a little bit and and talk about this race and talk about Maryland. Uh, What are some of the biggest issues that you think Maryland is facing over the next five, 10 years? And how can you go about helping to address them and solve them? My big passion is helping people in Maryland get ahead. And I think there are two things we need to do. One is jobs, and the second is reduce healthcare costs. On the job side, we're developing a plan to create 100,000 high-paying jobs in Maryland. It's hard. We need to attract big companies here. We need to incentivize investment in smaller companies. We need to do it particularly in areas where we that we need to develop, like Baltimore and some of our rural areas. And then the flip side of that is we also need to make sure we have a workforce that's ready for those jobs, which involves education and workforce training to make sure that we can match those things up. On the healthcare cost side, I've heard from so many people that healthcare costs are dragging them down, whether it's individual families or whether it's small businesses. Our healthcare costs are now nationally double what other countries are. And in Maryland, they're $1,100 more per person per year than they are in Virginia next door. 
and we can do better than that. Our system is very inefficient, and there's some things that we can do to, to make it better and less expensive for the people of Maryland. And I know you, uh, you're from, from Montgomery County, but I know that uh, a lot of the focus as people are thinking about the state of Maryland is just how different and diverse the state of Maryland is. And you're absolutely right, whether you're going out to Western Maryland or the Eastern Shore, or whether you're spending time in, 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 in Baltimore City, you're hearing different issues for, for, for the different groups. I, I want to zero in for a second on, on Baltimore City. Mm-hmm. What are some of the things that you're hearing and seeing specifically in Baltimore City and for Baltimore City that you know uh, need to get more attention? People in Baltimore feel like the city has been left behind. It is such an amazing place in this amazing location with amazing academic institutions and people. And yet we're falling behind here and crime rates are up and murder rates are up and our education system is not good enough. And the income levels are way too low compared to the rest of the state. And not enough has been done about that. And we need to change that. So it's all of those issues. There's no one simple fix to it, but what it takes is focusing on it and caring and and making a difference. I think there are some things we can do to spur some entrepreneurialism that will develop the local economy in a way that matches some of the the people that we have here and the workforce that we have here. How much do you think that your background of not being a politician, of coming from the business world, of coming from something separate, how much do you think that that influences your thinking about the the solutions that you want to introduce into the conversation? I think it impacts it in two ways. First, I ran five companies, and I will like to put my track record of those five companies up against the track record of the U.S. Senate in terms of how well they're functioning. Um, I'd like people to evaluate that. But more seriously, all of my companies were in professional services. I've always been surrounded by really smart people with a variety of ideas and opinions that wanted to do different things, and my role was always to bring them together to find the truth, to make decisions based on facts, to form a level of consensus. And I think the U.S. Senate is in desperate need of that type of leadership. We need people who can bring us together. We need to change the way the Senate is functioning today. And we need to do it in a way that's going to help the people of Maryland. And when you look at the other candidates that are that are now in the race for, for, for the U.S. Senate seat, actually, let me, really. when you look at the current race as it's laid out, for this for the Senate seat. What's the path and how do you see yourself navigating that path in order to bring yourself to victory? The path to victory at the end of the day is just about getting our message out because almost everyone we talk to wants to get involved and wants the support and wants to help because they know the system's broken and they know we need change. So our challenge is just to get the message out. To I'm traveling around the state. I've been doing it already. We've been um, using digital media as well. We've also been using social media. And that is our challenge, get the message out. And you're doing this full time. You've taken a leave of absence from your, from your job, from your business, and you're just going all in. I am all in, Wes. I am in this to win it. I'm in it because I want to help the people of Maryland. I'm in it because I want to help the people of America. And I want to do something about our dysfunctional government. How do people learn more about your campaign? www.neilsimon.com. That's N-E-A-L-S-I-M-O-N. You've been listening to Future City, and I'm Wes Moore, and we've been talking with Neil Simon, an independent candidate running for the Maryland U.S. Senate seat. Neil, thank you so much for joining us today, and best of luck on the campaign trail. Thank you. Before we sign off, I just want to leave with a few thoughts. 
you know, whether or not you agree with or support the centrist party, no labels, third way, or any other organization that has sprung up in the wave of recent history, it's ultimately unimportant. The big question is why there's a space for them in the first place. Unlike parties like the Legalized Marijuana Party or the Rent is Too Damn High Party, single-issue parties, these parties aren't just there to prove a point. They're the result of the hyper-extremism for many people in the two major parties. The campaign finance system, district gerrymandering, and other political realities have made it so that for far too many people, the simplest thing to do is just to retreat to a political corner and accept the forfeiture of one's democratic right and responsibility. Our community's persistent challenges and fleeting opportunities demand not simply our participation, but our engagement. The evolution or de-evolution of our political system has meant political extremes dictate terms, and compromise can be politically existential. Stalemate means survival. In our future city, we need to structure a system that supports the needs of the voters and doesn't just fortify the necessity of the party. We need a place where we're not just making sure people have the right to vote, but we're also giving them something to vote for. Future City is produced and edited by Katie Marquette. We welcome your feedback, and you can contact me directly on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram, and my handle is at IamWestmore. If you want to learn more about some of the people and organizations we heard from today, or if you want to listen to previous episodes, please visit wypr.org and look for Future City under the Programs and Features tab. Future City airs here on WYPR on the third Wednesday of each month at 1 p.m. and then again at 9 p.m. So until next time, for 88.1 WYPR, your NPR news station, I'm Westmore. Future City is sponsored by Janine and Josh Fiddler and supported by the Baltimore Community Foundation, whose vision is that Baltimore boasts a growing economy where all have the opportunity to thrive. <laughs>